21,200, the total number of inpatient hospital beds in New York State. This means 2.5 beds per 1,000 people. 15 years ago, then-Governor Pataki created a commission on healthcare in the 21st century with the goal of right-sizing the number of hospital beds and making recommendations on how the state's healthcare system should be restructured to improve care, especially for underserved populations. With respect to hospital beds, the reductions since the report have far exceeded the commission's target of about 6%. They've declined about 23%, largely due to healthcare organization consolidations. At the same time, the commission's other recommendations concerning the nature and quality of care have not been implemented. COVID has brought a tremendous amount of attention to the healthcare system shortcomings. In some areas, local hospitals were overwhelmed in the first few months of the New York outbreak, and this has led to calls for more inpatient beds and opposition to closure of hospitals that had been planned before the pandemic. Here with us today to discuss the status of the state's and city's current healthcare systems and what must be done to assure better preparation to respond to the needs that the pandemic so painfully revealed are two expert guests. Steve Berger, who was the chair of the Commission on Healthcare in the 21st Century, which is now generally referred to as the Berger Commission, and Dr. Mitchell Katz, the president of the city's public health and hospital system, New York City Health and Hospitals. And welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Carol Kellerman from Citizens Budget Commission. And thank you for joining us for this episode, which uh, is obviously extremely uh, timely and important. And as we are still battling COVID-19, but also wrestling with some of the initial lessons learned and questions that have come out of New York dealing with this pandemic, uh, it's really important to talk with these two expert guests for some long-term and near-term perspectives. So again, thank you both for, for joining us very much. Um, so why don't we start, uh, Dr. Katz, with you. Um, reflect a little bit now, if you can, on sort of the, the bigger picture in terms of hospital capacity in New York City and, and, the, and the toll of the pandemic. Uh, there were certain hospitals uh, that were overwhelmed with COVID patients, uh, but, but some that weren't. Um, how are you thinking about hospital capacity uh, as we are hopefully coming out of this uh, pandemic, given all the vaccination that's happening and everything else? But how are you thinking about uh, hospital capacity? Well, thanks, Ben. I, COVID has certainly caused everyone in the hospital uh, world to reconsider what it means to have beds. And uh, what I'm thinking of is a couple of things. Certainly, Queens was the most heavily impacted. Um, And that was because of the combination of the high number of COVID cases in Queens and the relative small number of hospitals. Um, So the usual uh, safety valve for a hospital being overwhelmed um, is diverting the ambulances. But how do you divert the ambulances in a borough um, where there are so many overwhelmed hospitals because the number of beds uh, per uh, residence is much smaller? So ultimately, 
uh, in the crisis, what we had to do was transfer patients to Manhattan, um, where we know the, that the number of beds per uh, resident is uh, much higher. And so the, you know, the capacity that we had in those other hospitals was very helpful to us. But really the, the issues were uh, that COVID sort of highlighted are so complicated because what I really think about is uh, to ask it in, in a question, what makes a hospital bed? Do we mean the number of beds on a license? Do we mean the average daily census of the hospital? Um, do we mean what you can staff up to? Um, and, you know, uh, Health and Hospitals has 11 hospitals, and they all had different versions of this question. So, for example, earlier on, I was asked, well, what, you know, Mitch, your uh, Manhattan hospitals are, have a lot of room. Why can't you just move the patients to those hospitals? And the answer that any healthcare provider would understand is because I don't have nurses and doctors there. Right. When you say that the hospital has room, what you mean is that the census compared to the number of licensed beds shows that I have a lot of room at the hospital. But hospitals are not about physical spaces. Um, hospitals are all about whether you have nurses and doctors and environmental service people. Uh, a room is is really of no significance um, compared to you know, staffing. So I think everybody has to, you know, rethink and, you know, I'll be interested what Steve says based on the commission. Um, the, to me, um, the quote unquote excess hospital beds, if you're staffing those beds or those beds are costing you a great deal of money because you are maintaining a physical plant structure that you can otherwise reduce and thereby lower the cost of healthcare, which I think is important because when healthcare costs too much, it affects access. So I'm all in favor of increasing access by making healthcare less expensive. But uh, the truth is, again, take the example of Metropolitan. If uh, I close off a floor of metropolitan and turn off the lights, I don't really have much cost. If, if, if magically, you know, you saw it off the top floor of the hospital, it wouldn't really change very much my cost of running metropolitan hospital. Um, so in some ways, what COVID showed is we were lucky in New York that we had the physical space because we uh, just health and hospitals alone we employed 9,000 people um, for at least one day who were not part of our system. Some of them were volunteers, some of them were registry staff, um, but the fact that I had space made a huge difference. When we tried to create hospitals um, in uh, field situations, it was extremely difficult because you had the space and even if you sent the nurses and the doctors, what we quickly found is, well, but we didn't have the equipment we needed. We didn't have the pharmacy. We didn't have the labs, right, that you have in a hospital. So it's very hard to create a hospital 
in a field situation. And most of the field hospitals used in COVID were helpful, but not for the sickest patients. They were helpful for the patients who perhaps could go home if they had a safe place to go, but they didn't have it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking forward, and I, um, I'll be, again, I want to stop after this and, and hear what Steve uh, thinks, that going forward, I think hospitals need much more flexible areas that they can not necessarily run, but that they can open. We need more regional cooperation. One of the things that I learned as a native New Yorker that I didn't know is by uh, policy, EMS doesn't leave the borough. So that was one of the challenges in Queens is that, right, even though Queens and Brooklyn are attached and you might think, okay, well, if the Queens hospitals uh, are full, you would naturally take people to the Brooklyn hospitals. Well, our EMS policies are um, by uh, borough. Our use of um, technology should enable us to at least get virtual help from doctors or uh, in other places or nursing staff to teach our nurses. We have to figure out how to bake into our system capacity, but not in each hospital so as not to inflate the cost of hospitals, but to be able to draw on whether it's regional or national um, staffing when it's necessary. So Steve, why don't you, there's a lot there to respond to and probably agree with, but why don't you react to what Mitch said? And, and, and in addition to talking about beds and what we mean by beds, talk about what other lessons there are about the healthcare system and how it's structured from the COVID emergency. Okay, I want to play off something. One of the things Mitch said about flexibility, and I'd like to do this by talking both about vertical and horizontal. Let me start with the vertical. The vertical is in New York State that the state of New York basically is the regulator. The state of New York provides lots of the money. The Department of Health has a responsibility and should have had a responsibility for planning for emergencies, given the responsibilities they have, both for their, the public systems, as well as regulatory power over the private systems. They didn't have a plan for an emergency when this occurred. They still don't have it. They haven't done that. And in fact, if you had a plan, you would approach the entire system as a single body of capacity and have planned for both space and people and flexibility if you had thought ahead, you know, if you had thought ahead. That's part one. Part two goes to some of the stuff Mitch was talking about is the horizontal. The fact of the matter is that one of the major things we didn't learn, we've known, is that we don't have the proper distributive care system in New York. Um, we, have, we have large areas where you do not have the, the, the structure of preventive and available care, which is part of what you need to deal with major emergencies. Now, part of this is 
that we have siloed systems. And, and that works okay. I'm not trying to break them up. But when you have an emergency, that's where the state should be able to step in and combine a combined capacity to distribute it across where it is needed. And in fact, Mitch's argument about you can't open the, the flexible uh, systems to deal with problems by shifting. You can if you're organized to do that. And if you know that's what's going to happen. And that's that's what that's what we we didn't we didn't have, you know. My problem as which is the next stage. What we've learned we didn't learn from COVID in front of us is, with all due respect, Mitch, we have overinvested in the acute care hospital systems now for fifty years, and we have underinvested in a preventive care, a distributed preventive care network that is available to help treat people. We're seeing it now with vaccination as well as we saw before. So what we don't have is a, is a concept of what the delivery system should look like. I don't think we need more beds. I think we need flexibility and a different approach to delivering health care, which would enable us to deal with emergencies. Uh, you know, the, 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 the sad part is that we were late in responding and we were late in responding to this problem because we didn't have a response mechanism in place to deal with a crisis. I want to come back. We can come back to how many beds we need and talk about that. But that's the core, I think, of a problem. And I have some ideas what you do about it. But that, I think, was the core of a lot of what went wrong in the state. But isn't, isn't another thing that was wrong going back before people got so sick that they were stacked up in ambulances to the point that many people had pre-existing conditions that made them more likely to have serious illness and that we don't have sufficient preventative care and primary care in, in the very same communities that were most likely to be victimized by COVID and that there seems to be so much focus on hospitals um, instead of a, an overall healthcare system. For example, Health and Hospitals has 11 hospitals, but it also has many other community facilities, as do some of the other hospitals. But we don't, no one seems to focus as much on that problem. Am I wrong that that's a serious problem? And why doesn't it more attention. Can I just try a quick part on that one? I absolutely agree. And by the way, when you talk about distributive care, it's, it's, by the way, we ought to start thinking about that both as physical care and behavioral care. We ought to be talking about integrated locations. We've got a couple of things. The Commonwealth Fund did a study about eight or nine years ago that said, that said in the United States, the, the, what I would, let's call it shorthand, sort of the clinic the clinic facilities are open the shortest hours of any of the major industrial countries. We, we need available care that's available in those communities that meets their needs, which is longer time, open and available and more, and more comprehensive. And we don't have, we, what do we say? We send 5% of our, our medical budget on preventive care. Uh, you know, and, and the reason, part of the reason for that is the power of the embedded 
infrastructure, the political power of the embedded infrastructure and our history. You know, we began putting lots of money into hospitals after World War II and they needed it. And we've built up this infrastructure. We've got unions, we've got political power, and we've convinced people that healthcare, hospitals equal healthcare. Hospitals are part of healthcare, and they're mostly part of sick care. But a healthcare network now with telemedicine, with technology, with a sense of distribution would give us a very different access system than we have now. And that's where I think we ought to be going going forward. Well, of course, as a primary care doctor, I, I enthusiastically agree. I mean, if you look at the, the underlying illnesses that Carol was referring to, hypertension, uh, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity um, were, you know, the leading underlying illnesses that made people much sicker due to COVID. And those are primary care diseases and those are treatable and having good access to primary care um, will make a difference. I, I do think we have to uh, balance with the question of, and I think maybe what Steve was saying, the emergency aspect for emergencies. I mean, again, just to give you a scope, I mean, we went in six weeks from having zero patients who were intubated um, due to COVID to having 960 and in a six week period. And during that period, we tripled the size of the ICU. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the question is, how do you, you know, overall, I totally agree what we need is, you know, excellent primary care that's available at the community level and addresses underlying health issues. And that's the biggest bang for the buck. And it's terrible that that's not what we spend that money on. But I do think we have to think if there is another emergency like this, how do we do a better job with uh, corralling existing resources? And that's why I was mentioning the regional, and I'll just give one example. Um, there, you can do now um, consultations for, with ICU doctors virtually, where they can see all of the monitors um, that the patient is on. They can see the vent settings. They can see, you know, right. the presser settings. Why is that important? Because the biggest shortage we had during COVID was intensivists. Um, do I think that now because of COVID, uh, all our hospitals should add a lot of intensivist doctors? No, that would be very expensive and not the way to get a bigger bang for the buck. But might it make sense for the U.S. to staff two regional ICU centers with the capability to rapidly, wherever the crisis is, to rapidly provide consultation with intensivists? Yes. You know, so I, I think that, you know, part of the plan that Steve was talking about has to be about regional resources so that you both have what you need in the case of an unexpected emergency, but you don't add a ton of expense to each hospital. But you know, Mitch, we could do that on the state level also. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I kept my, heart, my, my vertical to the state and to the, and to the, and to the city and the counties, but you could, you could do what you're talking about on a statewide level. 
Let me add one other thing, because I don't want to miss it in this discussion, because it's become part of the ongoing discussion. I talk about preventive care. The other part of it is long-term care, which is atrocious. You know, I, and I, we can argue about using the nursing homes, and in theory, we should have been able to, but they are at their best mediocre. And those of us who've been running different commissions over time, and I was one social services commissioner, I will admit that, the con that concentrating on the acute care system and preventive care, most of us walked away from dealing with what we, can, what we knew to be the mediocrity of our long-term care system in terms of organization and planning and care and all the rest. And we paid for that in this situation dearly. And I think that part of that, that we don't have a comprehensive approach to healthcare among our regulatory bodies. You know, and and I look at it, there are five state agencies that deal with the delivery of care. Department of Health, Mental Hygiene, uh, yeah, and and we need a comprehensive approach that would that would enable planning, would enable people like Mitch and institutions, and SUNY and and the city system and the big empires. We need something that that sort of holds that together and makes it work better. I have a I have a suggestion about that, but I want to hear what Mitch has to really say first. Well, Steve, you know, I moved back to New York because I worried that my now 98-year-old father and 93-year-old mother would wind up in a nursing home because it doesn't matter whether you've put aside enough money or not. If you reach a point where you can't organize your care by yourself, you, you wind up in a nursing home unless somebody is prepared to organize your care. Um, and, you know, I, I say that because when I think about my 98-year-old father, he doesn't require skilled nursing, which is what we say, right, is the threshold for a nursing home. But somebody has to organize his care. He can't organize his care. He can't arrange for aides to come. He has, you know, quite a lot of memory loss and easily uh, disoriented. But, but I have the ability to organize his care and so he lives independently. Um, I've never known anyone who wanted to go to a nursing home. You know that 45% of the deaths in the first wave were due to nursing home residents or nursing home staff. Um, and I think that we do need to completely reconsider you know, what we want care to be like for older people so that the focus is on you know, quality of life, it's what makes nursing homes expensive is that they are viewed as medical facilities, despite the fact that most of the people in them actually need help with activities of daily living. That That's really, and we've, we call them nursing homes in order to give a compelling reason for insurance to pay. But if you actually look at what it is that people need, what is a nursing home, Right, it is your home where people are coming in to organize your ADLs, and that may be giving you your medications, but your child, your spouse, your aide could give you your medications if you would organize it in that way. Um, but it, that will require a complete reconsideration of you know both the, what the facilities look like and how they act, 
um, and how we take care of our elders. We also have to change the law because if if the aides give everybody their medication, it's against the law, which is, Correct. of course, which is of course one of the stupidest single laws. And we got a lot of stupid laws, but that's really stupid. Correct. But, you know, but but, you know, you could take care of your 98 year old uh, uh, family. Maybe I could, too. But 90 percent of people, when confronted with that, have no clue how to get help and organize to take care of their elderly I'm, a, I'm one of those guys, those elderly, those elderly parents who need help. I mean, so it's not only the institutional network, it's the community areas also where we have not we don't have the access. Let, let me make one suggestion of something that somebody once made in terms of a lot of this. Once upon a time when I was social services commissioner, Hugh Carey, who was the governor, came up with an idea. And Kerry's idea was that he would appoint a deputy health commissioner for the state and get the mayor to appoint the same person as deputy health commissioner for the city of New York. And those two people would have a access to the governor and be supervisory and overlook over overreaching authority over the myriad state and local agencies and would be able to create planning, common planning, and and work through some of the, the problems that we're talking about. Kerry proposed it to A-Beam and about three hours later, the city went into bankruptcy. So that disappeared. I mean, I was part, that disappeared. But that was an important idea. You have to add the counties also. It's not just the city of New York. But by having a, a state and local capacity to, to organize and plan and solve some of the very things you talked about, about ambulances moving from here to there and some of the crazy rules between departments, we have to get somewhere there if we're going to be able to use what we already have in our systems in, in, a, in a time of emergency without spending weeks and months figuring out how to do what we ended up doing under COVID. That's an interesting idea. Someone should start asking all the mayoral candidates whether they would commit to that. I think it's a great idea. We have to tell them what a health department does, by the way, first. (laughs) You like like that idea, Mitchell? I do. I do. I think it's a great idea. Could I go back to one thing before we got off on long-term care about uh, telehealth? People say that's one of the good outcomes of COVID is that no one believed telehealth would be useful, but then everyone relied on it to avoid going to doctor's visits. Do you both agree that that is a good thing in the long run? And don't the same people that have barriers to community health care accessibility risk being left out of telehealth? They don't have broadband. They don't have, they have language barriers. How do we make the value of telehealth extend to the populations that most need it? Well, I'll start and I'll be interested in what Steve says. I mean, I think, yes, uh, tremendous value, but uh, also limitations. Um, and that nobody should view this as, you know, uh, the answer to the problem, uh, Carol, for, for some of the same reasons. First, um, when Steve was talking about, you know, the uh, inflexibility of outpatient visits. So, 
you know, I don't think there's a huge difference between saying, see me next, I'm available for you next Tuesday at 2 p.m. in my office, or I'm available for you uh, next Tuesday at 2 p.m. on your computer. I think that's a pretty small difference. Um, really, what I want as a primary care doctor is to be available to you when you need me. Um, and if you don't need me, I don't need you to come in. And if you do need me, I do want to be in touch. And I, with my own patients, I text with them, I email with them, I talk to them on the telephone. And in that way, I make things uh, more flexible. That requires, uh, I can do that because we mostly receive value-based payments or, uh, or, or I'm taking care of the uninsured. And so either way, it doesn't really matter, you know, so... You know, and, and nor do I think that, that I want to get paid for each text I sent. There, the other uses I liked of um, virtual care is we had uh, family visits um, during COVID using right. iPads that involved relatives in faraway places, which never would have occurred to us. Of course, we could have always done that. Right. I mean, who says that the family you most want to make the decision of the local people who we would always call in for the family meetings. So I love the idea that we were having family meetings with people in foreign countries across the country. I thought that was a brilliant use of, of virtual care. Um, I think delivering we're going to be doing some pilots uh, taking care of people with drug use issues using uh, virtual uh, technologies to connect them through mobile vans. I think I think that's great. But I, I personally think we should not oversell it. Um, I don't feel that I can be as healing um, by the phone or by the computer as I can be in person. There's something about the hand on the shoulder. Humans are social animals. We were meant to interact. A lot of being a doctor and a healer you know, is not, you know, tossing out prescriptions on the basis of, you know, uh, visits, but really, you know, connecting with someone. So uh, in addition, Carol, to all of what you said, which is, I think, the, the people best suited, you know, to use that technology are the same people who were doing Zoom, were working on Zoom, yes. you know, through the pandemic, and the people who were most at risk, the grocery workers, the transit workers, are you know less capable? Uh, it's not a it's not a panacea. It's a useful tool. It helps in a lot of instances. I want to I, I want to look at this. So just I want to take what Mitch has said, and I want to expand it a little bit because I've got to do that. I may not live to see it all, but I'd like to see it happen. I want four things. Talk about technology. It's important. Talk about another thing that's happening around the country is the growth of the urgent care world, okay, which has different levels. You know, everything from going into Walmart to having to having places that are now very close to being primary care facilities. But but there, you have those. Then we have to deal with the insurance issues and have all of this start to get wrapped together. And then I want to talk about one of our failures, but it was the right thing to try, which occurred during district, which was when we were when we had federal money to try to expand delivery of care. The key to that was to was to using non 
white coats in communities to bring care to people. We did a lousy job about it because we didn't know how to do it. But if you add that up, if you can get community people involved in care in centers that are local with insurance covering it and using technology, you can begin to penetrate over time. This is not overnight. This is not Nescafe. We're going to add water and have instant coffee. But if you make those kinds of commitments over a period of years, five years, six years, penetrating a little bit deeper, using all those tools in those communities, we can change how healthcare is being delivered. But putting that whole package together, unfortunately, also requires uh, having a, a federal government, which we may or may not have, finally. But if you could put that together and fund it and train people and get the acute care institutions to sort of understand that, and I'm not talking about health and hospitals on this one, how they have to bridge out and have different access into the communities, you could begin to create a network of care, which provides an infrastructure for dealing with a lot of these problems. Uh, I mean, that's the package I would like to see put together and all of these little pieces go together in it if we had some leadership to make that happen. Any thoughts on that, Dr. Katz? Uh, you know, Steve, you know, it's like, it's like talking to an oracle right. um, when you talk to him. <laughs> right. You know, I, I think, I think these, these are all, you know, excellent things. I, uh, I'll touch just on the urgent care to say that I, I have, I'm very ambivalent about the growth of urgent care. I sort of see the growth of urgent care as due to the failure that Steve referred to of, of outpatient care being available. Um, and so it, it's, it's like a workaround. People cannot find primary care doctors um, and they cannot then get to see their primary care doctors, which is why I was putting such an emphasis on mm -hmm. texting with my patients and emailing them because uh, the, I feel like one of the strange things about how primary care has evolved is the doctor can't see you because the doctor is seeing new patients. So you can go in for the first visit, but then when you actually need the doctor, you can't see the doctor because the doctor is busy. Um, it, it doesn't really make any sense, right? You, when you, it's when you're sick that you really appreciate seeing somebody who is familiar. And instead we've created all these urgent cares because people can't get in to see their primary care doctor in a timely way and, and that that's the problem we should solve. Because I think that episodic care is likely to push up the costs of healthcare. Um, and you know, maybe for another day, I'd be very interested in Steve's view, uh, Carol's view. We pushed for consolidation but has consolidation really made things less expensive? I think it hasn't. No. I think it's no. that, that the consolidation of the hospital systems in New York has made it possible for them to get higher rates from insurance companies. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to name names, but I know we, of instances where uh, hospitals are charging three times what health and hospitals is charging for the same procedure. Um, and the insurance companies have to pay it because they feel that they'd be uncompetitive if these hospitals were not in their network. So the, the hospital, by being 
consolidated has clout, the insurer has to pay and then the insurer has to pass on the cost to all of us because how else do you pay those high rates? Um, I don't think in the end consolidation has saved a nickel. I agree. And I remember I'm an old social services commissioner who ran the Medicaid dollars. And uh, I wish I had that job right now for about six hours. I, I would change some of the reimbursement dramatically. Let me go back to the urgent care. First, the urgent care is at the moment still mostly in middle class neighborhoods or working class neighborhoods. Right. And the reason, the reason for that is that those neighborhoods have people with insurance, with third party insurance. And for the third party insurance payer, it's a lot cheaper to pay for what's going on in urgent care than in an emergency room. Sure. Now, by the way, the emergency room is also episodic care. It's not the kind of care we really want. I mean, I think what I would like to see on the urgent care side as it grows is, is having insurance rates and Medicaid and Medicare rates for urgent care, which matching what the insurers are doing for in third-party insurance, where it's still cheaper to do that, and to and therefore you could encourage and get the kind of urgent care facilities into the poor neighborhoods. They are a substitute. Mitch, you're absolutely right. I think that's sort of the first stage of change that's going to take place because it's going to go from being urgent care to being primary care, and then they're going to have to have be part of the networks of care delivery for tertiary and other care services. You know, years down the road. But I'd like to get them into those communities where right now you have almost nothing. And so I see, I see it as sort of a process over time. And I think the other part is we do have to deal. Like I could name them, the guys you don't want to name because you have to deal with them. I could name them all, as, as you well know. But the costs, the costs of consolidation have been extraordinarily high. And we haven't gotten the value from it of the kind of local care that we should have. So we're in our last uh, moments here. Uh, I don't know if, if Carol, if you want to ask one final question, I have one. Oh, final, go ahead. One go final ahead. question of each of you, um, and it's it's really this: as we hopefully, again, hopefully, are coming out of of COVID and the COVID crisis in the coming months, is there one big thing? sort of structurally that needs to either change or a process that needs to be undertaken? Is there uh, really the need for a, you know, 9-11 style commission to come out of this in New York? Should the push for community health centers be the number one thing to flood communities with, with opportunities as, as has been, you know, discussed somewhat in this conversation? Uh, Dr. Katz, you've talked before about thinking there should be a single payer system in New York. Should that be accelerated? Uh, what's the one big thing uh, after this great conversation that you think structurally needs to happen next? I, I defer first to the Oracle. <laughs> uh, look, I think I think I've sort of talked about it in different ways. I'm, you know, I've I've, I've done the commission route and all the rest of my life a couple of times. Uh, I think we I think we need to put together from the state level you know, a structure and a, a planning process which involves all of the different uh, delivery systems, which they control anyway, because you control the regulatory process. In, you got to bring the insurers into it involved, 
and begin the planning and the instituting of a broader network of delivery. It's all that stuff that I think I've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's a single thing. By the way, I don't know when we're coming out of this also. Right. Sure. And I don't know whether this is the last or the first of these kinds of viral attacks on, on, on the human race. So I, I think that's essential to deal with and to assume that we have to have this kind of capacity as a ready to deliver ongoing capacity involving all of the, the health delivery systems that we have and involving community based systems as well. I was going to, when I said 9-11 commission, I was going to say burger commission, but I didn't want yeah, you but- to, I didn't want you to think of it as too much of a replication of your commission. So, Dr. Katz. Well, I'll, I'll do it too for, uh, I, I think our country needs a better emergency arm. And mm-hmm. I, it's not just, you know, the issues of, um, uh, COVID, but if you look at some of the national disasters we've had over the last few years, whether it's the forest fires in California or the the floods in Texas, it doesn't seem to me that we have a very sort of fast, organized emergency approach as a country. And right, the skills of, um, I mean, we have FEMA and FEMA is certainly helpful as a payer, and helpful in recovery, but was not, certainly was not a huge part of our response in the first wave when we most needed it. And I think other countries have an established emergency response group that's prepared to respond to whatever crisis occurs. Um, and because the how you respond to crisis is different. It requires a different mentality, a different command structure, a different set of urgency. And then uh, go back and say, since it's the thing I know most about, primary care, right? That is the biggest difference between the US and countries that have um, more equal access and better healthcare is that they put their effort into primary care. And to mention one more issue about urgent care, uh, urgent care is easier to do for the provider, which is also why it keeps proliferating. When you're an urgent care doctor, you're only responsible to do everything for that person in that visit. And then your responsibilities are over. Um, when I when people join my panel, right, they you know have access to me for whatever their issues turn out to be. And that's a very different level of responsibility that requires that we support it if we wanted to provide the great outcomes, right? A lot of people talked about the success of uh, England on quick vaccination and its connection to the National Health Service, right? Where do you get your vaccine? Oh, you get your vaccine at your provider because everybody has one. Mm. Right. Not like this country. Right. Everybody has is a member mm. of the National Health Service and everybody has a provider. It doesn't have to be based on that model. But I like the idea that everybody has a provider and knows where to go for the vaccine. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. We could talk for hours more. Uh, I think I heard Carol when I say it was good to just sit back and listen to you two both, both talk. So thank you so much for, for joining us. You've been listening to Steve Berger, who is the chair of the Commission on Healthcare in the 21st Century, often referred to as the Berger Commission, among other hats and titles, uh, including the Oracle, is our other guest, Dr. Mitchell Katz. <laughs> The president of New York City Health uh, and Hospitals uh, has has called him today. Carol Kellerman, former president of Citizens Budget Commission. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks very much for listening. And thank you both again. Thank you.